I always try and ask my kids if I, I'm going to share a story about our family or of them ask their permission because it's their life and they don't have to be little sermon stories all the time, but they're who I live with and they're pretty great people. So every once in a while, uh, I'll get to share a story about them. So we uh, got to travel this week a little bit. I mentioned that uh, Monday through Wednesday, we were in Dallas at a conference for a bunch of friends of mine, colleagues who are pastors around the country. We all gather once a year in Dallas, all of us who've gone through this same training program, the residency program, and we eat and we cry and we uh, share best practices. We, we did all of these things. And it's really lovely to have a space like this. But when you're traveling, you don't have your own home. So you're, we got to stay with friends of ours who work at a church I used to work at in Dallas. And there, were, there was one guest room for Corey and myself. And then the kids were sharing a room with their friend, Katen, who's about Judah's age. Judah's nine, Ruthie's six. And Katen loves our kids, uh, just welcomes them in like they're siblings of hers. Anyway, Ruthie and Katen shared a bed, right, after you broke the bed. So it was, what, 10 at night or something, and they, the parents came in the room, and they had this look on their face, the homeowners of something has happened, but they didn't tell us what because they're sweet people. Turned out, jumping created collapsing. And so the bed was on the floor, they pulled the mattress out and just put it on the floor and made a pallet, which was great for Ruthie and great for Caton because they chat all night. In fact, chatted till what ended up being midnight. We didn't know, but Judah likes to sleep. <laughs> and he, uh, he came and he, uh, he asked, he, go, he said, uh, he came to all the adults who were getting to just spend some time together in the evening. Guys, uh, I'm really stressed about the sleeping situation. I really need to go to bed. So can I sleep in y'all's bed? And it's a, it was a small, it wasn't like a king size bed we were sleeping in. So Judah, you ended up sleeping on the floor, right? In a sleeping bag because you're nine and nothing hurts your back. <laughs> Sometime during the night though, Judah ended up in uh, our bed with us and I had a hard time sleeping. And so I decided I'd really need to get some rest. So I got on the floor in the sleeping bag between the wall and the bed. And it was a really small space. I mean, it would have been like sleeping just on this table. That was about how much room I had. And about halfway through the night, I thought to myself, I'm the parent. <laughs> Why am I on the floor? Uh, but you had a good night's sleep, Judah, right? That night in the bed. I did not have a good night's sleep that night. And we stayed just a couple of nights and sort of traded turns on the floor, right, Judah? Sometimes you would sleep on the floor, sometimes I would sleep on the floor. Uh, but there are, well, it reminds me of a story. Um, pope John Paul II, uh, just a little bit ago, a couple of popes ago in the past, uh, it turned out he had all of these practices that were hidden from the public. This is a very public figure. Uh, everything about his prayer life, everything about his spiritual life was on display. And so he had very little space to have a private devotional life that was just between uh, himself and God. What came out after his death was some of the folks who worked with him closely, some of his assistants started telling stories about Pope John Paul. And one of the things that was revealed was that in his uh, sleeping quarters, he was not sleeping in the bed. Now, he didn't have a Judah that he was sharing the bed with, but he still had this sense that he was very important 
And he needed to remind himself that he was not so very important. And so every night he would sleep on the floor. And it wasn't a carpeted floor, it was a hard floor. Uh, but he would also, he would take the sheets and he would ruffle them up in the bed and sort of toss the pillow around so that no one knew that he had been sleeping on the floor. And he didn't sit, lay down in a sleeping bag on the ground and I imagine say, I'm the parent. Like, I'm the adult in the room. That for him was this way of taking a physical posture of humility in the midst of a very high and important office night after night, and nobody knew that this was happening. One of my favorite writers, A.W. Tozer, uh, writes a lot about faith and prayer and God. Uh, it's credited to him that he said that he would wake up every morning and he would have so much to do that he would stop and he would pray for the first couple of hours of every day so that he would be able to do everything that God had for him to do that day to immediately before anything else assume a posture of humility. Today we are going to talk about becoming small. We're in chapter two of the book of Philippians. We've been preaching through this letter to the church in Philippi, and we are about in the middle of it today. We're gonna to take the first half of chapter two today and then the next half next week. You heard the reading today. I wanna to introduce you to one word, and uh, it's a long word, and I don't really know how to say it. Tapinofrosune, tapinofrosune. Everybody want to say that together? Tap it. No, absolutely not. It, uh, I'll read to you where it comes from. It's from verse three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. The word here, this long and complicated word is the, the Greek word for humility. It occurs in this form only once in the New Testament, but occurs 34 times in different forms for what it means to be humble. And we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, posture of the heart across Scripture this morning. And we're going to try our very best to live into it as well. The word at its root, um, it means this. It means to throw down your heart. So the, the Greek there is two words that are smashed together, which is very common in this language. And one of them means to, to be low or to be prostrate, to lay down all the way against the ground. And then the other word is the word for this part of your body that we would call the diaphragm or the, the midriff for the, this kind of gut section. And for uh, people in that time, they would divide where parts of your emotions would rest in your very body. And so at times Jesus says that I'm filled with compassion. And what he's saying there is that his guts, his innards are twisted and contorted. When Paul here talks about being humble, he says to take this mid, this diaphragm part of you. It's the, where they thought that all of the, um, feelings and sensitivities and deep emotions for the world, the ways that we would think uh, empathetically where we take our bodies and we place them in knowledge uh, in the midst of all of the emotions of the world, that part of you where your breathing happens, this was the part that Paul says, you have to take this and you have to throw it down, lay it down low. And you do this for the sake of the ones around you in your community or those who you don't know to make space for them because there's only so much room in that comfortable bed and somebody sometimes has to sleep on the floor. And so you take this and you throw it down. 
The reason given for this, it's the reason always given in Scripture because this is what Christ is like. Christ not finding himself uh, to be equal to God, forsaking glory, taking on the form even of a servant. Now, humility in the uh, Greek world was not a virtue, mind you. To be humble or to be humiliated was for a certain kind of person. It was the kind of person who had no control over their life or over their destiny. You didn't want to be a servant because the greatest good in this time was to be able to do the good. And to be able to do the good, you had to have some sense of control and freedom over your life. And humility, humility means that your life and my life, they are in fact bound together. You follow. And so freedom and autonomy were the greatest good so that I could pursue what was right for my life and you could pursue what was right for your life. And to be humiliated, to be humble, was to place yourself under another or under a community and they might be the ones that guide what is the good or what is the right. And so when Paul talks about to be humble, he is cutting against the culture in a really stark and strong way. This idea of humility, though, we need to trace it throughout the scriptures. And we're going to do this today uh, as sort of a sweeping fashion. Every once in a while we do this, where a concept will be brought in a a letter distinct to this church. So Paul's writing to this community at this time uh, about unity in the midst of suffering. And he takes this concept of humility and humbleness. But that has been uh, colored in, given shape and form over centuries of being uh, the people of God. So, for instance, we'll start at just this really uh, concrete example of what this would look like. So, when the people are in exile, when the Jewish people find themselves uh, not in control of their own lives, the best example is when they're in Babylon. They're away from their home. They have to get back home. And the way that God talks about that, the way the prophets talk about that journey, John the Baptist uses this language, is that God will make a way where there isn't a way. And and the way this happens is God will take the high places, the mountains, and bring them low. And that God will take the valleys and the trenches and he will raise them up so that they might have a clear path back home. This is the language of humbleness. If you find yourself too proud, if you find yourself too high and you're in the way, then there will be a lessening. There will be a a reduction. And then for those who find themselves in the ditch and in the trenches and they can't get out, there will be a a resurrection or a raising of sorts. It's, It's baked into the equation for God in the world that the high places will be brought down low and the low places will be brought up and then there will be a way forward. Jesus tells a story in Luke's gospel. We're going to walk backwards through the text. We're going to start in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. It's Luke 14. Jesus is at the Pharisees' home. The Pharisees are the religious leaders at the time. And it says in chapter 14, one Sabbath when Jesus went to the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and said, sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls in a well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Then he noticed this. He noticed how the guests had picked the places of honor to seat at the table. 
So he told them this story. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host will invite both of you to come and will say, give this person your seat. Then, here's your word, humiliated. You have to take the place of least importance. If you put yourself on the mountain, be careful because the mountains are brought down low. So what you should do is you should go find the seat in the valley or in the trenches. Take the lowest place that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of the other guests. And then this line, and this is humbleness or humility down into a phrase that we could carry with us. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The high places will be brought down and the low places will be raised up. This is always the motion that God has taken in the world. Turn back a few pages in Luke's gospel to the song that Mary sings as she's with child, as she's carrying the Christ child into the world. She sings what's the Magnificat. Uh, pretty powerful words for us today. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty ones has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm and he has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has, here it goes, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. If you turn back to Isaiah 53, prophet Isaiah talks about one who is to come out of the people Israel. This is the, the passage of the suffering servant. It ends up being a passage that gets applied to Jesus as one who is humble even unto death. This is the language of the hymn that Paul quotes in Philippians. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. From the transgression of my people, he was punished. A little later, it says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He has been brought low and then he will be raised up and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The people Israel have one abiding memory that they carry with them throughout their history. It's the story that Jesus picks up on. It's the story of the Exodus. There is no more uh, deep state of humility than being a slave to another people. And, and Israel finds themselves in slavery in Egypt. Now, we know the story, right? The Exodus, that, that God sees them, it says. God sees his people's affliction. He looks down on them. And he goes down, and then the story is that God saves them with a strong hand and outstretched arm. 
goes down low to bring them up. And then Moses goes to the mountain of God, to Sinai, when they're traveling to their new land. And and Moses goes up to meet God and brings God's word back down. There is this leveling that happens in the book of Exodus. And the reason this is so important is because all of the rules and regulations and commandments and instructions that become the covenant of Israel. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here's why. Because you were once slaves in Egypt, and now you are not. And you will live in a world full of enslaved people in one form or another. And it will be your call, your vocation in the world to bring about liberation, to see the ones who might be low and to raise them up and to see the ones who are high, who have their heel on the neck of those who are below and to challenge or critique or to protest, to bring them low. One of the ways this gets talked about in the Bible, this tending to the low places is the language of how do you treat the most vulnerable among you? And the most vulnerable get explained in three different ways. The widows, the orphans, and the strangers in your midst. Because these are the ones who have no protection. These are the ones who have no one in a high place to save them other than God. If you go back even further to the very beginning of our scriptures, you get to where we derive our own language of humility from. It says in Genesis 2, where we come from. It says that God takes the dirt, takes the ground, and forms it and breathes into it and becomes a living thing. The word for humility or humbleness in our language comes from the word humus or or dirt or earth. So that when you are humble, you remember where you came from. The psalmist says, remember what you're made of, that you are dust. God knows this. And you must be reminded of this. This is the origin of part of who we are. We are both of the ground and we are also of heaven, that God takes this dirt and breathes into it the divine breath and it becomes a living being. The rabbis say that humility is probably the chief virtue. There are all of these rules and regulations that go with Judaism, and we have our own set of rules and regulations that go with Christianity. Uh, But over time, the rabbis will say that uh, if you can bring a humble heart, then it is though you are bringing all of the offerings there are to bring to God. The rabbis say this because they are quoting from... King David, Psalm 51, David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, my offering, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. It is our humility that is the stuff of our offering to God to bring a humble heart. 
I am uh, acutely aware of the fact that humility is a virtue for the foolish. That there is only so much to go around. And the world values winners. Those who have, those who control, those who can direct their own life. And it is gravely dangerous to put yourself in subjection to another or to a community or to a, a God. What we are called to do as Christians, as followers of Christ, is to proclaim against the available evidence that this is the age of the Lamb who was slain. That history is not made by the winners, but has been decisively decided by the greatest loss. Loss even unto death, Paul says. He's quoting this hymn in Philippians. And he adds his own little line in here. He says, have the same mindset that's in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And there we have this hymn that maybe the early church carried with it and sang Sunday to Sunday. But Paul takes it and, and just moves it a little bit further and says, not only obedient to death, but even death on a cross. There could be no greater humility. We say this over and over again here. And the reason we say it over and over again is because, beloved, we forget that the world has been made and remade by the actions of God in Christ, on the cross, and in the resurrection. It is a sign of great humility. It is the greatest humbling act, even unto death. Now, if we try and locate uh, world-changing power anywhere else other than this grounding story, then we have, in fact, lost the plot. And the plot had been written over time in such a way that we should have seen it coming. It has always been this way, that God sees, comes down, and lifts up. And so Jesus places himself in this grand drama of humanity and falls to the ground, throws heart and soul and mind and body down and then waits for God to raise him up because that's what God does. Humility at its most simple, might mean listening. Being open to another. Being open to God. Marge Piercy wrote a poem I'm going to read for you in just a second. So here's what it's like. In this world today, and it's always been this way, 
There are the experts, the hot sports opinions, there's polling data, there are institutions that will tell us how the world is and how it must be. Right now in our world, not just in our country, but everywhere, there seems to be a shift happening. And we will name it clearly today in worship. We will place this shift underneath the lordship of Christ and within the gospel story. And the shift is this. It's toward tribalism. It's toward uh, shoring up you and yours, of holding the gates so that others might not be able to find uh, some sense of balance. And part of what you're feeling, because it's part of what I'm feeling, is a deep sense of chaos everywhere. Everywhere. Any paper you pick up, any news channel you turn on, any radio station, it is, well, to use the words of the prophet Jeremiah, it's magor misaviv, it's terror all around. Now, partly this is good for the world for everyone to be afraid, for everyone to be anxious because we become a, sort, a certain kind of pliable. And so everyone now becomes an expert in what should be happening. So you've got preachers and pastors with pronunciations about uh, what the church should be doing right now and who we should be listening to. And then you've got folks on every side of every aisle talking into this space, screaming into this space. And humility is just, it has, well, it is in the trenches. Jesus comes among us not bearing emphatic pronouncements, but bearing a life given over for the saving of the world. Not yelling from on high how right he is because he's figured out God, but just saying, watch me. Follow me. See if you can keep up where I'm headed. Jesus disappears a lot of the time to listen to God, to pray. If there's one thing about a humility we could do when I say to listen, that might mean for us to pray again. Listen to this poem. We must sit down and reason together. We must sit down. Men standing want to hold forth. They rain down upon faces lifted. We must sit down on the floor, on the earth, on stones and mats and blankets. There, moment, there must be no front to the speaking, no platform, no rostrum, no stage or table. We will not crane to see who is speaking. Perhaps we should sit in the dark. In the dark, we could utter our feelings. In the dark, we could propose and describe and suggest. In the dark, we could not see who speaks and only the words would say what they say. Thus saying what we feel and what we want, what we fear for ourselves and each other into the dark, perhaps we could begin to begin to listen. Perhaps we should talk in groups, small enough for everyone to speak. Perhaps we should start by speaking softly. The women must learn to dare to speak. The men must bother to listen. The women must learn to say, I think this is so. The men 
must learn to stop dancing solos on the ceiling. After each speaks, he or she will repeat the ritual phrase, it's not I who speaks, but the wind. Wind blows through me, long after me is the wind. After each speaks, she or he will repeat the ritual phrase, it's not I who speaks, but the wind. Wind blows through me, long after me is the wind. We are made of the dirt and the dust and the ground, but we are also made from the breath of God. The word for breath is the same word for spirit is the same word for wind. And as we listen, as we breathe in God, we might be able to breathe out grace. God tells who is known as the wisest man uh, of his time, King Solomon, in the book of Chronicles, this, in the midst of the people's rebellion, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Adam Sultani up here with me, and we had a conversation. Adam is uh, the executive director of uh, uh, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and he's a good friend of mine. We've gotten to know each other through interfaith, and one of the questions that I had for him that we shared with each other is, what are some goods from Islam that you think uh, we could uh, embrace and learn from in Christianity and then vice versa. And he answered with, I think, a word for us today, which is prayer. The way that he prays is five times a day and uh, for 10 minutes at a time, he says, which means he gets about an hour uh, of prayer every day. But, but he, he stood up here and he showed the different postures of prayer. And this uh, is a richness that a lot of us may have lost. This is the sleeping on the floor when the bed is perfectly comfortable. Uh, he said that either it's, it's standing and bowing or kneeling or laying down. McCory and I were talking the day before about what kind of questions Adam and I would have, and you asked me that question. Well, what do you think is something you would learn? And I said, well, probably a posture of prayer. I don't know what the answers are to the way that we are supposed to be engaged and involved in the world at this time. I know our call is to follow Christ. And I know that that call entails a cross, entails a kind of dying. I don't always know who my neighbor is or what they need. And I don't always know what God is saying because I'm not always listening. And maybe you're the same way. You want to be. You want to know where God is calling you to act, to stand, to sit, to listen. You want to know who your neighbor is and how to love them. You want to know when you see and feel the world's brokenness because you've taken your heart and you've thrown it down. That God will go with you. And you might be an agent for healing and hope. But I, I know this, it does not start with us saying a lot of things, with us pronouncing things from on high. It starts with us listening. 
And so I'm going to invite, we used to do this a lot, but not so much anymore, um, that we would have a time of prayer. A time where the altar is open, where you can come and you can put your knees on the ground and your head to the floor and you can listen. If you don't want to come to the front, then you can stay where you are and you can offer nothing other than an open heart, than humility, than the remembrance and the reminder that you were dust. As you pray, as you listen, you are listening for God, and you are listening for God in this world. You are tuning your heart and your mind, your ears and your eyes to see Christ at work playing in 10,000 places. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, you'll, you'll find me if you're looking. You'll see me in the poor and the outcast and the hungry and the thirsty and the imprisoned and the stranger and the one crossing borders. If you're looking, you'll find me. If you're listening, you'll know what I need. So Melissa is going to play for us uh, just some hymns as we pray together. It's a dangerous thing to time the Spirit or to say, for the next five minutes, we're going to listen to God and we'll see if God says anything. Fingers crossed. Uh, This is practice. Part of what we do in worship is we practice. And so we will practice humility. I'll start us just with the word of prayer, and then uh, I have to do some listening. And I invite anyone who would want to to join me at the front or where you are in your own seats. And then after a period of time, I'll close us in a prayer, and we'll sing our last hymn together. Um, but let's, let's begin. Dear God, we are here. We are listening. We are out of pronouncements, tired of trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. We really just want to know Uh, what you would have us to do, who you would have us to be. So this is our offering. May it be acceptable. Continue to speak, God, in our lives, in the quiet and in the loud places. 
humble us in the places where we are so proud in heart. Break us open so that we might see the pain around us as you do. That we would be deeply disturbed by what disturbs you. In your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen.